if you backflipped any harder, there would be spinal damage. But this week on Download This Show, how the subscription service OnlyFans, of course famous for its adult content, yes, consider this your due warning, ended up doing a drastic about-face within days. Plus, Australia has some new spy and digital surveillance laws, we'll look into them, and Apple backs down in a big way, but also celebrating 10 years of executive Tim Cook. Has he actually gone in the last decade? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell. Welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Joining us this week, Jono Seidler, creative at Unyoked. Welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be here, albeit digitally. It's the only way any of us are anywhere at the moment. And alongside digitally, uh, John O'Sidler, we have Ariel Bogle, analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Welcome back to the program. Hi, Mark. All right. We've got a lot to work through this week. But first up, only flip is my nickname for this story. Uh, if you were listening last week, we were talking about how the subscription platform OnlyFans was planning on removing very adult content from its platform, Jono, and then they flipped. What happened? I think the big thing with, with OnlyFans or OnlyFlip, which I actually think is a very good name, is Thank that you. they kind of did uh, do a 180 on themselves when they basically said that they were going to get rid of all sexually explicit photos and, and videos from, from October, which is quite soon, and then turned around and said, actually, no, we're really inclusive and we kind of stand for all of our creators. I think there's two things happening here. One is that the creators themselves, who actually have quite a lot of leverage here, were starting to vote with their feet and moving away from the platform, which obviously devalues the platform itself. And the other was I guess their conversations with the financial providers and the banks who were kind of forcing them into this position um, that really made them maybe think twice about how they were going about it. Ariel, were you surprised at the the sudden backflip? I was a little. I mean, let's be clear though, they have said they're suspending their decision, which isn't like a complete abandonment of the decision. So I know that a lot of creators on the app, um, people in the sex work community are not entirely confident that this policy of getting rid of sexually explicit material won't be back sometime in the future if they can't sort of iron out whatever's going on here. It, it's interesting. There's like still quite a bit of he said, she said about this story. So like the head of OnlyFans blamed the banks for the reason why they needed to get rid of sexually explicit material, you know, suggesting that uh, some of their banking providers were making it hard to process transactions linked to sexually explicit material. And this is definitely like an old story. There have been a lot of instances where uh, technology products providers have abandoned sexually explicit material, even where they've made their name on it. You might think of Tumblr. I mean, when was the last time we talked about Tumblr? probably around the time they got rid of all their adult content because that would have been a news story that we would have talked about. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when a platform has like created a name for itself, created an audience, created a creator community based on uh, one type of material and abandons it because of pressure from payment providers who are in turn getting pressure from a number of different lobby groups and advocacy groups, uh, it's a pretty messy situation. I, I don't think a story is quite done yet. So how do you think it'll play out, Jono? Do you think they will have to revert back to their original plan perhaps when people are paying less attention? Because I kind of, you know, the, once the users have uprisen once, I don't think there's much to stop them from doing it again given it's kind of demonstrated their power collectively. 
Yeah, I think that's really true. And I also think it's interesting that, to me that OnlyFans is fighting back as a, as a company and that they are like going after, um, like Ariel was saying, JP Morgan Chase and saying like, you know, you close the accounts of sex workers and we're a business that supports sex workers. That was really not really part of their rhetoric to date. So I think they are realizing that their users are really valuable to them and they just need to go with that. There is a bigger question here, Ariel, that I think is worth discussing, which is like, what is OnlyFans if you take away the sex work? Are there like these pockets of other content that does exist on that platform that people aren't paying enough attention to that perhaps that company are looking to invest in to kind of broaden the definition of, I guess, what people think of when they think of OnlyFans? Well, I'm sure OnlyFans would love a greater diversity of content on their platform and they do sort of promote that angle that they have all kinds of different content creators, you know, food channels, crafts, all kinds of other things. But let's be honest, the reason why we know about OnlyFans at all is because of the labour of, you know, adult performers, sex workers and others. Like that is literally the only reason we're talking about OnlyFans today. So to pivot Mm. away from that when they have not... Uh, managed to attract other types of creators to the app, I think is a risky proposition and probably why they push back or at least appear to be pushing back against some of these payment providers and their rules. I mean, it's an interesting one because I don't really see how OnlyFans can play in the broader content space. There are so many significant challenges. I mean, not least YouTube. I mean, as the sort of king Mm. of all its surveys, um, it would be pretty hard to cut into that sort of area, even though OnlyFans does, of course, offer that kind of subscription model, which a lot of people have appreciated. I think it's pretty, uh, yeah, they'd have a tough road ahead of them to define themselves by content other than sexually explicit material. Is it an either or, Jono? I mean, like, are we at a stage in culture where that community can be vibrant and well-supported, but there can also be a huge community of, like, professional crafters on OnlyFans? Or is it once you become known for adult content, you cannot be known for anything else? I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, I look at something like TikTok, which I think had a particular stigma attached to it for a very long time. Oh, it's for teenagers. Oh, it's for people doing stunts. It's for dance moves. And look at how that's kind of blossomed and become its own thing. I think one can support the other. I'm not necessarily sure that you can pigeonhole something. Obviously, I think adult content comes with its own kind of halo effect that sometimes rubs off on other things. But I don't think in any way it has to necessarily just be adult content and it can't support others. In fact, one could support the other. What is wrong with OnlyFans being defined by sexually explicit material? It is, Mm. in fact, a booming industry, a multi-billion dollar industry globally, and in many cases is legal content. I mean, here in Australia, a lot of the sex workers using the platform are, you know, performing entirely legal labour. There is a kind of puritanical sort of reaction here, I think, from a lot of the banking sector and, and platforms that don't want to be defined by this content. But... OnlyFans has the reason it has about the value that it does. I think its cut of sales is projected to be to be uh, about 2.5 billion by 2022. That's off the back of its content creators, which are by and large people creating adult content. And um, to dismiss that, I think, is a bit, uh, well, you know, dismissive and a bit, yeah, I guess puritanical again to say the same thing. You know, there's still this stigma around sex work and sex material, even though it is a very popular kind of content and often an entirely legal one. Even in the wider context of like adult content, it's got to be 
you know, writ large, one of the more ethical organisations because, you know, one of the biggest issues, and I, I think I mentioned this in, in weeks past, is that one of the biggest issues with something like Pornhub is a lot of the content on there is is ripped from paid services, paid performers, they get no sort of money back from them. It's, you know, it's done an enormous, it's had a devastating impact on the, the adult content industry in general, whereas with with OnlyFans, it's literally a platform where people do the work and they get directly paid for the work and OnlyFans clips the ticket on the way through. It's like comparative to other platforms for adult content. It's got to be one of the more ethical ones out there. What do you think, Jono? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think at some of the earlier adopters of OnlyFans from what I was reading were actually porn stars who were realizing exactly what you were saying. They were getting ripped off by these large services who were kind of going like, oh, it's not our responsibility. We don't have to take any action on it. And then going, oh, wait a second, I can actually monetize my own material and I can have full control over my product and my output. And I do think that that's really important and something that's often forgotten when we are talking about adult content is that Ariel's right. We have got this like really like uh, Tipper Gore kind of puritanical streak happening where people are just assuming that the internet is not for porn and like not to quote Avenue Q, but it is. <laughs> All right. Download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name, our guest this week. John O'Seidler, creative at Unyoked and Ariel Bogle, analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and are former Prime Ministers like Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott about to be spied on by ASIO under legislation that was uh, pushed through Parliament in the last couple of days? Ariel, introduce me to the Foreign Intelligence Amendment Bill. It's a very sexy title. Very sexy title, yes. So that sort of idea around whether Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott could be spied on by ASIO was raised by the independent Senator Rex Patrick, you know, often a critic of surveillance bills like these. So basically the bill amends the telecommunications interceptions laws and enables ASIO to apply for warrants to obtain intelligence from foreign communications even if that results in the, you know, incidental quote-unquote interception of domestic communications. So currently ASIO is not allowed to intercept any domestic communications, well, at least until this bill was passed last week. I guess the issue here and what ASIO has claimed is that when you're trying to intercept communications, it's it's hard to distinguish sometimes between foreign and domestic or there might be some sort of exchange between the two. But what Senator Patrick was talking about with this Kevin Rudd and Tony Abbott angle is that those two uh, former prime ministers are both registered on the Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme, or FITS, and he catchy, suggested... Catchy title. Very catchy title, yes. Um, he suggested that, you know, say, take Tony Abbott. He's a registered uh, as an unpaid advisor to the UK Board of Trade, and he wondered whether the minister could be spied on by the intelligence services, you know, for having this like foreign and uh, domestic communications, maybe around foreign influence. I think that was kind of dismissed by the Home Affairs spokesperson, claiming that there would be sort of warrant thresholds. But, you know, it's one of a sort of uh, bundle of bills that were passed recently, I think, with a lot less scrutiny than you might desire for something of this significance. Uh, The Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, they reviewed the bill, but they didn't really hear from any civil society, only from agencies. And uh, it was passed very, very quickly uh, to the complaints of a a range of different independent senators and MPs. There is a a very lively question in there as to what is the appropriate level of transparency. Jono, as a a taxpayer, (laughs) if nothing else, what's the level of transparency you would want from bills like this? 
Look, it's a difficult one. I'm also a bit worried about how fast it was passed. I mean, I read something that I think it was like three hours and the crossbench got it for like 45 minutes. Like this is a huge bill. There should be a lot more uh, scrutiny happening. But as a taxpayer, as a taxpayer, I think uh, <laughs> what what I worry about is that when people don't have oversight into how this process is, is pushed through parliament, it means that by the time it actually becomes law or is enshrined into law, it's a bit late in the piece. And it means that a lot of these things are kind of taken out of our hands i think particularly when it when we're talking about like how much information do you want agencies like asio etc to have it, it does really vary and i think that the guise of terrorism which is kind of brought up in some of the other bills that we'll probably discuss is kind of used as a bit of a ghoul to justify a lot of overreach that we wouldn't otherwise allow in our daily lives and so i think that there needs to be a bit more discussion around that but it, the lack of discussion is almost by design ariel well, one might say so. <laughs> Mark, yes, you might. Okay, say. fine. It looks to me, person who is uninformed, that it looks like it was rushed through with a view to not necessarily having open and full debate about something that you generally don't want to have that many eyes on. Right. Come at There's me. always Come this, at me. Yeah. <laughs> there does <laughs> seem to be this uh, trend, and it's not a new one. It's certainly, we've seen it over the past years, the past decade, of passing quite significant national security laws under the guise of terrorism, as Jono mentioned, uh, also of disrupting child porn uh, operations, both, you know, quite significant issues, of course. But when you start to delve into the letter of the law, the kind of uh, new powers are not enlivened with those kinds of sort of crimes specifically. They can apply to all kinds of crimes with typically more than three years prospective jail time. You know, these include things like theft, fraud, tax evasion, illegal gambling, bankruptcy, illegal importing of fauna, you know, it's not strictly about child abuse material or terrorism or threats to national security, even though that's how the government continues to frame these laws and sort of pincer move Labor into supporting them each and every time. But of course, Jono, this isn't the only bill we're talking about today. Tell me about what else we should be paying attention to. Yeah, probably the big one for me is the Identify and Disrupt Bill, which I think is slightly sexier in terminology than our previous bill. So what this Identify and Disrupt Bill allows the AFP and other agencies to do is to kind of identify and disrupt what they suspect to be criminal activity, mostly online. And that, you know, it allows them to collect data. It also allows them to like, and this is a bit on the nose, kind of like disrupt networks and take over accounts. This is really scary to me. So the ability to kind of like go in and get data. And we've obviously seen instances recently, but the issue with a lot of this is that you don't actually have to be a criminal suspect yourself to fall under this. So you could be the target of a warrant if you are unwittingly in cahoots or, you know, your network or your business is somehow wrapped up or has fallen into, you know, something much more pernicious and they don't really have to ask you your permission for that. And you could have no real feasible idea that you're like aiding a criminal enterprise or have, you know, you could get this like serious disruption to your network when the AFP or ASIO just come in and just take it over. So I find that really scary. I'm just thinking through the practicalities of that, right? So if, if part of it is about taking over networks, I guess the logic of it is there's bound to be a group of people involved in, in various online networks that have varying levels of agency within those groups. Therefore, you've sort of got to give yourself coverage to access their data. Like, is that, am I getting the wrong end of the stick with the practicalities of that, Ariel? Well, what comes to mind and probably the, a recent example, not in Australia, but in Europe, uh, I think it was Dutch police took over a dark web site that was selling, uh, I think, explicit material, drugs, weapons and other things. And essentially uh, 
I think they arrested the person who was in control of it and then took over his account and essentially ran the network while they were collecting evidence about the various buyers and sellers. So one could imagine these types of warrants being used for activity like that. And that's certainly how, as I said before, the government framed it, you know, as being an important means for police to disrupt um, child pornography operations or terrorism organisations, but these uh, serious Commonwealth offences that could enliven these types of warrants include tax evasion and gambling, illegal gambling. So it's not like these quite significant and unprecedented powers will only be used for those most serious of offences. The issue here too is always around transparency and accountability as well. I mean, as we've seen with the encryption laws passed a few years ago, we get very little information from law enforcement about how these powers are used, when they're used. And we often find out the sort of stats, the sort of most basic stats, like one account takeover warrant was used more than a year after the fact. I think that's really not good enough. The other sort of maddening thing about these debates in Australia is how the government and agencies kind of frame it as child porn crimes on the dark web, when in fact these laws don't apply just to the dark web. I mean, I think the term dark web is swiftly losing any kind of meaning. So specifically, the dark web is a kind of uncrawled internet which you can access via a Tor browser. These laws don't apply just to that kind of technology. It could apply to a pretty typical computer network. And also the other sort of uh, example that is always now brought up in the media is Operation Ironside, where Australian police collaborated with police in the United States and around the world to essentially uh, supply a device and an encrypted app to criminals and then sort of observe the the traffic to catch a variety of different criminals, drug deals, etc., it's a pretty broad range. I just want to make sure that when people are using the term dark web, uh, they are really talking about the dark web and not just trying to sell a kind of dark and shady part of the internet that definitely we want cops to be all over. Mm. And you don't actually have to be wearing a black hoodie when you log on, like all the stock photography. Exactly. And you don't need a light up keyboard either. (laughs) I mean, it helps. No, I've got to throw this out. It definitely helps, though, if you've got one. All right, download this show is what you're listening to. Ariel Bogle from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and John O'Sidler from Unyoked are our guests this week. Apple made waves this week by announcing a $100 million US settlement with small app developers who were suing the company. Let's just start with why they were suing Apple in the first place, Jono. So the reason that they were obviously suing Apple in the first place, and this was kind of driven uh, by large companies like Epic, who look after Fortnite and Spotify, uh, particularly in Europe, is that these companies weren't able to have the ability to have their own payment platforms within the app store. So that was a big problem for them because Apple takes a 30% clip of every single app that's inside the app store, and they wanted to have their own ability to do that. So that was the big reason that they were suing in the first place. All right. And so why did uh, Apple fold, Ariel? Well, I think Apple's facing issues on all sides in the United States and in Europe in particular, a lot of pressure about their alleged monopolistic behavior, especially when it comes to the App Store, because they do control which apps are listed there. And then they also really control the way that app developers can be in touch with their customers and offer services for payment without Apple taking quite a significant cut, I think about 30%. So this is a settlement agreement. It's a proposed settlement agreement, I should say. So we'll have to see whether it's approved by a judge, which is the next step. But it is a bit of a shift. I guess there's a debate, though, about what Apple's really giving up here. 
So I think it's offering an $100 million payout from Apple, but it's also clarifying, quote unquote, its policies to explain that app developers can contact customers with permission and tell them about payment options outside the app store. Um, It's known Mm. as like an anti-steering policy. It'll be interesting to see whether that makes a big difference because, you know, there's a lot of convenience to making in-app purchases that I think people will be uh, resistant to stepping out of that sort of enclosed space that they're more familiar with. So, I mean, from a user standpoint, Ariel, assuming this all kind of flows as has been, you know, preemptively agreed, what sort of changes will you as a user likely notice in the, the years to come? Well, you might get that contact from an app you've signed up for to, you know, offer that alternative way to pay. I think this settlement is really much more focused on developers rather than users. You know, as I mentioned before, there will be a creation of a $100 million small developer assistance fund, which, uh, you know, one of these funds from a big tech company, which is aimed at helping small developers get off the ground. I mean, according to one of the plaintiffs, the small developer assistance fund will benefit more than 99% of US iOS developers. You know, I guess I question um, how much this will really impact users at all or whether they'll even notice a change. It's really about that um, accusation from developers and concessions from Apple to these developers about its kind of power and control over the App Store. And staying on Apple, uh, Tim Cook, Chief Executive of Apple, has marked 10 years in the job. And it's interesting with Tim Cook because obviously he comes in the wake of Steve Jobs who sort of looms very large in tech company law and indeed popular culture. And Tim Cook sort of came in as this very low-key character, but he's sort of done the distance in a way. Yeah, he really has. I I saw this great quote I was reading all about Tim Cook uh, earlier this morning, and they kind of said that Apple needed a cheerleader and a politician possibly more than a micromanaging, stressed-out founder. And I thought that that was a... (laughs) I just thought that was a really nice encapsulation. I mean, like, people forget Tim Cook has, like, has really helped to make Apple. It's one of the world's most... It is the world's most valuable company. It's grown, like, to, like, $2.5 trillion. Its revenues doubled annually every year. And it's this giant, multifaceted business that was really... I guess when when um, Jobs was around was primarily known for hardware. He has really diversified the business in a way that I think very few actually predicted. What do you think of the legacy of, of Tim Cook? I don't think he's going anywhere, but in the 10 years that he's been there, Ariel, how, do you, how well do you evaluate him as a chief executive? When I think about Tim Cook, I just think about him fronting the conferences. I think about Apple's revenue going up. There's a great Verge rap on Tim Cook's legacy and there's a tweet in there just tracking uh, quarter one revenue since 2011 and the numbers are just crazy. You know, 2011 quarter one was $26.7 billion. Now quarter one 2021 it was $111.4 billion. Like I guess mm. from, an, uh, from an objective perspective numbers go up means good CEO but um, <laughs> I think there are a lot of like uh, – legacy issues here, not least around um, the lack of creativity and new, highly innovative hardware. There's always continuous issues about waste with Apple. The fact that Mm. it remains pretty difficult to repair their devices. There's a lot of discussion around like the AirPods, which I think is probably one of the more significant bits of additions to the iPhone in recent years. The fact that they were breaking initially when they came out, you know, they were just another little bit of plastic to throw into the landfill. And these are the kind of uh, issues that continue to haunt Apple as it sort of achieves its sort of world mega dominance, which, of course, brings legal issues with it, too, as we were just discussing around monopolistic behavior. 
the strategy is just infinitely less showy with Tim Cook in the sense that it's moving it from being a hardware company, Jono, to being more of a, a software and services company. So you get introductions of like Apple Music and Apple TV+. Plus. From a business standpoint, those things sort of make sense because it's a continued income stream. Like you sign up to a s- subscription service and you're sort of there funneling money from, from month to month. But does it seem less ambitious as a company to you now under Tim Cook? It does and it doesn't. I think people give Tim Cook a bad rap because, you know, with the exception of the AirPods, there hasn't really been like a massive, massive launch. I don't really count the watch. I feel like um, most people... You don't count the watch? Have... I was going to say, surely the watch no, counts. I have... It's it, the watch kind of sits in my in my drawer, and I take it out every so often when I want to know what Actually, my heartbeat let me just is. Check. Yeah, mine's in the drawer too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like Apple, things like Apple Health, particularly Apple Health and and Apple TV, really, but mostly like things like Apple Health, like the the far reaching ramifications of that and what that's going to do for that business. Like, I agree, it's not sexy, it's not the new iMac, it's not the new iPhone, but I think it will actually keep the company in a better financial position than it would have been otherwise. It just allows them to go into so many different areas. It allows them to partner with different people. They're also, they're still acquiring companies. Obviously they are because they're huge, but you know, they are buying up new companies to do new things. And I think they are working on more hardware plays as well. But I think just solely focusing on that, the, the arena was getting crowded. Samsung's been coming for their lunch for a long time. They've got that foldable phone that now I hear is not exploding. Oh, that's so, good. you know, that's there, are, development. there are, yeah, there are a lot more players in the field than when jobs was there doing the same kind of thing the access to that kind of technology to build these kind of things which apple i feel like had like a really big head start on when jobs passed away has changed now and they have to diversify and i think the investors have kind of like really are really happy with that because if he would have just stayed only making iphones i'm just not sure if they would be the company they are today there's a lot of mythology as i mentioned that sits around apple ariel what is a matter of urgency for them? Like what is something they need to be doing now to get out uh, ahead of the curve, be it, you know, a technological or business thing or even a, a social issue that they, they need to be a part of? Well, Apple's clearly chosen privacy as its sort of message to the world. Mm. I mean, there are ads uh, like at train stations now really emphasising that angle. Apple as a privacy company It got a lot of, I suppose, credit for this when Apple resisted uh, efforts in the United States by the FBI to get it to unlock the uh, phone of the San Bernardino terrorist a few years ago. You might remember that kind of stoush between Apple and the US government. It refused to open up the phone to create a sort of backdoor into the phone's encryption to allow the cops to get in. I mean, the cops did manage to get in uh, using a different form of technology not provided by Apple. And its uh, current sort of approach to scanning uh, Apple properties, iClouds, etc., for child pornography is uh, probably a interesting and controversial development on this front. It's going to be a difficult play for them to balance these kinds of pressures from law enforcement and social pressures around things like uh, scanning phones for illegal material, etc., and that angle which it clearly desperately wants to cling on to as the privacy company in contrast Mm. to the other tech giants, whether they be Facebook, Apple, Samsung and the rest. 
I think that's why Apple has basically avoided a lot of the regulation that you've seen coming for the likes of Google and Facebook because they have put so much impact on privacy and they have kind of put that forward as their big brand message. That's allowed them to kind of neatly sidestep a lot of the issues that Errol has talked about already um, that are coming for them. But also the, the fact that like we're trying to break up these giant companies and Apple is the biggest. It is the sole biggest company in the world at the moment in terms of actual market capitalization. So if anything, we should be trying to break them up more than anybody else. But for some reason, they're not under the same level of scrutiny as something like Facebook. And I find that really interesting. But I think that's in their future, to be honest. And I think Cook knows that. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. All right, that is all we've got time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to John O'Sidler, creative at Unyoked. Thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. And Ariel Bogle, analyst with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Thanks for coming back on Download This Show. Of course. Thanks, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.